Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, and I'm here surrounded by my fabulous team, the greatest team in North America when it comes to the infinite banking concept. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm Sue. I'm Justin. I'm Megan. I'm Julie. I'm Josh. I'm Melissa. I'm Jess. I'm Jake. Listen, we're thankful for our clients, for you, the listener, for each other, and from all of us to you. Happy Thanksgiving! In this episode, Ryan and I talk about what we're thankful for, and we articulate three key principles that have developed over the last 149 episodes. Thank you for listening, and happy Thanksgiving. Welcome to the Bank You With Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And here we are, deep underground and undisclosed location downtown Alvarado, Texas. But look, this is a 150th episode of the Banking with Life podcast and the Thanksgiving episode as well. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes. Um, I know I'm thankful. Are you thankful for anything, Mr. Griggs? I'm extremely thankful. Uh, It's been quite a year. Um, Turned 30 this year. A lot of good things have happened since then. Um, Since you turned 30? Yeah. When's your birthday? Y'all can send him a present. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was in the summer. Let's say that. (laughs) Well. No, it's been good. I mean, October was five years for me in the business. Wow. So, yeah. Every year better than the last. Knock on wood. Uh, I love that. Yeah. October. I mean, I'm still not over the October live event that was fabulous it's mm-hmm. interesting that that was five years into you being in the business five year uh, anniversary of being baptized as well is that right you got yeah. baptized the same year same month the same month and year as when I started working with you wow yeah. well I'm thankful that we uh, have uh, worked together for the last five years and I got to meet you yeah And I'm sure your clients are thankful that you got baptized. (laughs) So they don't have to work with the unbaptized agents out there. I'm kidding. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. And as David clarified in the recent uh, interview for his role and linking us up. You know, he took credit for a couple of things there. Yeah. So, okay. And I haven't watched the whole thing because it's so long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh I do recall him taking credit for the sixth illustration in equipment financing. Yeah. You know, nagging on Nelson. Yeah, maybe those, not in a great way, right? Like maybe in like a hmm, pestering almost. Kind oh, of no way. question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh but I'm glad he did it. You know. Um Sure, more illustrations. Why not? I mean, yeah. Well, I understood <laughs> from Nelson, I and mean, Nelson didn't get into how, but he did get into the why, because mm. the agents kept saying, oh, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, because the book was printed in 2000, and that change came, oh gosh, 2011, 2012, I can't remember. Yeah. But while he was saying that, uh, I have thought since then, you know, the little key that uh, is on every page of the illustration in equipment financing. 
talking about the breakdown of how of what where the total annual premium outlay is allocated. Yeah, where it, it's got the uh, little key up here. Let me get to it. Up in the upper left hand corner, it shows that the guy the policy is a paid up at one sixty five or age sixty five a million two in death benefit. He's thirty years of age. His preferred rating fourteen nine nine. 25000 to the PUA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, at that time, that key wasn't going to be on each page. It was going to be in, on its own one little page somewhere behind all the uh, illustrations. Yeah. And I said, no, it needs to be on every page. So I got to take credit for that. Credit all around. So since we're taking credit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, if I'm look, I'm and of course everyone knows, <clears throat> I'm very thankful that I even got to meet Nelson Nash. You know, if we hadn't met Nelson Nash, if you hadn't met Nelson Nash, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, we would none of this said. would be here. None of this. Yeah, right. You wouldn't be listening. You wouldn't be paying premium. You wouldn't be uh, agent out there. You know, trying to. Do the right thing with the infinite banking concept if it wasn't for Nelson Nash. So, yeah, I'm very appreciative of that. And 150 episodes. I mean, and like chunky, substantive episodes. Chunky, yeah. <laughs> You're the one losing weight. I'm getting fat. Is that what I'm saying? Chunky, no, meaty, substantive. There's very, yeah, very meaty content and. The uh, critique that it's too long. Okay, well, and you pointed out too when David was here that you know the number one podcast in the country is long form. Yeah, in the world. I mean, and, yeah, Joe Rogan three hour uh, marathon style podcast. Yeah, yeah, and JP's coming out with an eighteen hour. Yeah, Jordan prison. Peterson's back at it. It's kind of. A seminar series on Exodus coming out. That's going to be very cool. You know, people say that uh, the in this modern digital age, the attention span is so limited, and that's only. I think that's only half true. Our attention spans. We're let me put it this way: we're more selective with how we spend our attention. Yeah, and the result is that certain things that are that people have determined to be unworthy of attention don't get a lot of it. But then the things that are substantive, you know, or Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson, whatever the uh, thank you a lot podcast, yeah, uh, that, that can, where, where people will want to pay attention that is attractive, then they'll spend it there yeah. and they'll spend it in droves. And then even more, they'll come out to events like what's happening in comedy right now. You can have a people, these guys do podcasts, and then maybe it's an hour, maybe it's two hours, and then they'll sell tickets all over the country. You know, they'll sell out major theaters that before you might have a handful of people 40 years ago would be able to sell out. Now there's several people. There's like this democratization of popularity, right? I mean, there's this growing uh, sense of attraction around certain figures, but more of those figures. Yeah. And it's because, you know, the, the falling price of bandwidth, you know, we can very economical to spend a lot of time to do it in nice image quality with nice audio to make it accessible to people for free you know it's you have the ability to create anything you want yeah right yeah i mean 
and people talk, we talk to so you, know, turn on the news. I mean, there's so much negativity out there, but we often jump, and this always happens with the market. People just jump clean over all of the wonderful, remarkable benefits that are constantly accruing uh, because of an ever-expanding market, despite encroachment from the state and other malicious actors. But, you know, the, the plummeting cost of mass communication available on demand, that's going to have an effect. I mean, I think to some degree it already is. I mean, you look no how, yeah. you know, the, the Dan McAdams on the Ron Paul Liberty Point Liberty Report always points out that, you know, the the public opinion on things, what people think, the ideas they have really matters. Otherwise, the propaganda campaigns wouldn't be so intense. There wouldn't be so much money spent to manipulate public opinion. And so while that can look like, awful horrendous propaganda and yes all that is true it's also an indication of the crucial importance of ideas and what people think uh, so it's a i mean it's you know youtube a lot of these social media platforms were in their young you know sort of adolescent stage in the 2000s early 2010s here we are early 2020s i mean that this stuff is just starting to explode to such a level that you know, it's widespread. You know, we can, the idea that 20 years ago, you could talk of like a digital public square, which I don't love that analogy at all, but people will use it to describe yeah. Twitter or what have you. But the idea that there could be an, an internet site that was the digital public square, that wouldn't even be a concept, right? right. And so the, the fact that that's even part of language is indicative of that, of this transformation. And it's all to the better. It's all to the better. If it, if it wasn't, all to the better and if the ideas weren't um valuable and important and worthy of considering uh there wouldn't be the mass deplatforming or limiting of free speech mm -hmm. um so the messages are very important and people you know today people are very intelligent you know like our perspective clients the listeners in general i believe people are very intelligent and they kind of I mean, they know what's going on, but um, the more the pushback on free speech, the broader the recognition is that maybe these things are worth listening to, whatever they are, because there is such a pushback to yeah. prevent, you know, the the exposure to the masses. Mm -hmm. So, and I think in the financial domain, and this is something that I want to talk more you know it's this there's been such a secular faith in the tax qualified plan and in the wall street products it's so funny i mean there's people think there's like you know there was um what were the wall street sit-ins or whatever it was there were big the wall street protests Oh, yeah, yeah, You know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. I forget the name. The, yeah, yeah. The, every listener is now reciting it to themselves because they know. But there, there's this <laughs> there's this popular antagonism to Wall Street, hmm. and that's kind of like accepted. Like, duh, you know, Wall Street, does Wall Street have your best interests at heart? Well, hmm, I don't know. Sure, but then, just ask them. But then how do you plan for your financial future? Oh, well, I'm going to max out my tax qualified plan. Exactly. And I got to buy all these Wall Street products. Oh, yeah. It's like, hmm. They're gaslighting themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's so curious to me. That there, it's it's paradoxical, even uh, contradicting. I mean, you can't. Similar to, well, don't want to go into detail, but similar uh -oh. to the uh, pharmaceutical industry. You know, it's a, <laughs> what everyone, big pharma, you know, all those lawsuits. But 
Oh, uh, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm the government I'm here tells to get me. my six uh, <laughs> booster or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I just, but a lot of that's crumbling. I think what the point is, a lot of that's crumbling, and more and more learning about getting back to the financial learning more about I more and more about IBC. A lot of the things talking about episode 150 and sort of looking back, you know, a lot of the things that maybe we spent more time on or that were more prominent issues early on have sort of, to my mind or in my experience kind of subsided. I think, um, you know, the 1090 thing, the short term oriented policy design mentality. I think more and more people are understanding that, that's what that is. It's a short-term way of juicing cash value in the short run and that it's not what Nelson taught. And I, I don't spend much time on it much anymore. I think, um, well, I, we still hear it. Knock we on wood. It. <laughs> but our clients, um, they understand. So as you say that people are recognizing that that's not infinite banking, that's not what Nelson did, it's because – they have considered and listened to the alternative to that, mm-hmm. right? Which is, oh, here, I'm going to call in and, you know, I want to pay X number of dollars in premium. So then they just spit out a page or two of a 1090 illustration. Um, and, there, and that gets a lot of traction. You know, I mean, Walmart did really well placating to the masses and the cheap price, which, you know, I, that's, I likened it to that because, look, we're all the same. So 1090 is the way to go. And, and so that serves, you know, me if I'm the uninformed consumer and I don't know what's going on behind the numbers on that illustration, but I see the massive amount of cash value that I can collateralize immediately, mm-hmm. right? Very simple. If you look at a comparative correctly built policy and look at that illustration and correctly built and we can go into that but um it's personalized into what the consumer the the uh, prospective client is doing you know the first number in the first year of the cash value is higher but when you look at the whole overall uh throughout the life of a policy and it, and it, it it there's a stark difference um and you see the value of long-term capital and i'm not and this doesn't mean that you have to have a 60-40 policy or a 40-60 policy. And it doesn't mean that you can't borrow against a policy in the first year. You've got to wait a certain number of years to collateralize the policy. Um, and it also doesn't mean that you're not going to have adequate capital until you're, you know, natural mortality. But the people that are walking over correctly stepping over the 1090 and the other noise out there it's because there's content um, for lack of a better term there's better information there's more informative intelligent informative information that's available yeah um so but you know you 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 talk about that that you don't or you deal with that less and less Mm -hmm. um there is still, I mean, that's once you get into the infinite banking footprint, right? Even prior to getting into the infinite banking footprint, I mean, I still see people have no awareness or an understanding of what they're doing in the financial world, qualified plans, still borrowing money, you know, from third-party lenders, um, not wanting, you know, to pay interest to a life insurance company, the evil life insurance company is going to keep the cash value when you die. 
and, and all of those ignorant things, and they're ignorant, um, which is not a bad thing. If you're ignorant, you can be educated, right? So you have an opportunity. Um, but I still see the other things that go on in the financial world like that. Uh, oh, no, life insurance is still a bad place to put money. Or I'm in a real estate investment group, and you know their life insurance, you gotta got to cash it out to, to go get a syndicated deal. Hmm. You know, I had a conversation with a client um, this week. An older individual <clears throat> didn't want to pay 5% on a policy loan. So it's like, well, I'm just going to cash out the policy so I can go do this oh real estate gosh. deal. And uh, and I expect to get a 12% rate of return or whatever and current, payout. Current client? Prospective client. Current. Current client. Yeah. Spend an hour after hours with her on the phone and uh, talk her through that and show her how extremely profitable she would be with the life insurance policy. And then the velocity of how many of those deals can you do? And she has had a hard time wrapping her mind around that. Hmm, that's too bad. You know, it's all conventional yeah. thinking, conventional finance. Um, so the struggle is real. Yeah, it's yeah. Certainly, by no means is the job done. I, I recall a client, and you know, very, very few of the people who get started with me stop, and like a handful or less. And but one of them was a young guy. It was great. He was super preferred, you know, big premium relative to his income, mm-hmm. smooth. I mean, I enjoyed talking with him and working with him. It's great. Mm-hmm. Something like a month, two months later, not long, he got married. Oh, yeah. New opinion enters. Uh, yeah. The, the medical student fiance said, what are you doing? Yeah. Get rid of this. Says, well, Ryan, I just want to make her happy. Like, okay, you're making the wrong decision but it's up to you. It's your private asset. You do with it what you want. That's one of the benefits. You can get out if you want out. And here's the number you can walk away with. But uh, yeah, he did. I mean, so that still happens. You know, it's not perfect. It doesn't doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And you know, that brings me (laughs) to another thing that I'm quite thankful for (sighs) is the noise out there Mm. you know i talked a little bit about the noise and the client only event and you know internal struggle number one i don't like to listen to myself on these podcasts right these episodes but you know do i talk about the noise too much and i'm not asking for an answer (laughs) (laughs) internal dialogue that i have right and um, and maybe justification, self justification, and you know, just looking, considering, Nethery, why do you do that? You know, and and uh, you know, you know, uh, I like to think um, well rounded and balanced, and so I don't want to overly do anything, right? Um, I'm thankful for the noise; they serve a purpose. You know, I go back to Jim Rohn, and you know, everyone, my father, my dad, everyone can teach you something. Some will teach you what not to do, and others will teach you what to do. And Jim Rohn, you know, we all serve either as a warning or an example. You can learn from both. And a warning of what not to do and an example of what to do. Mm-hmm. And the noise, quite, and I know that's very broad, but, you know, the canvas is big, so I'm going to paint with a broad brush. Um, it's prevalent out there that your client, newly married, 
she comes with her opinions and her knowledge um, and her resistance that we all have to mm-hmm. knowledge that's counter to what we believe maybe is the truth. Right. So it, it's out there. And so I'm going to continue talking about it. So, but they do serve a purpose, in my opinion, and it's a warning of what not to do. And, you know, I uh, recently found a quote on Facebook, social media, by Adam Smith, and I haven't vetted it, whether it is actually his, but it was attributed to him. Mercy to the guilty is cruelty to the innocent. And I'm like, I love it as soon as I read it. And I'm like, yeah. And I don't know if that's me seeking self-justification. But if it is, I'm okay with it because I believe it. Right? Mercy to the noisemakers is is damn near violence to the innocent, in my opinion. So I'm going to continue talking about the noise and pointing it out. And there's plenty of it out there. You can go get it. It'll, it'll follow you. It'll track you down. Right? And get all over you. Just... Watch on social media too long, and the AI tracks your eyesight and how long you're here and there, and and they'll just serve it up to you. Yeah, um, I get that with different financial, like those organizations that cater to the advisor. They want you to join their group. You oh know. my gosh! Yeah, says so my entire Facebook feed is that stuff. Yeah, they've discovered the infinite banking company. Every IMO, independent marketing organization across the country that wants to sell life insurance or whatever their other products are. But when it comes to life insurance, they've discovered how to spell IBC. (laughs) And they've even discovered, some of them, who created the concept, who had the vision over 40 years ago. And now they are aware of Nelson Nash. And so they'll throw his name out. Yeah. Hey, Ellen, how about the books? Oh my gosh! Everyone's got a book. New, uh, new way to you know things that they discovered. Yes, always. Yeah, right. but there there might be a cursory mention of Nelson in the back or under their breath or somewhere buried into the uh, the work that they've done, and it's hard to swag through and slosh through and. I just, I mean, coming from an academic background, I don't know if I'm just carrying over prejudices that very well could be the case, but uh, attribution, where I come from, is extremely important. Like, you putting forth something that you say is original that is not, like, allowing for the impression that it's original, like, to not be proactive about that, that to me is like... The, it just like it's cringy. Yeah, it's a death knell in the academic world, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's. I mean, more and more <laughs> doesn't really count anymore. But it used to be. Yeah, that was like the cardinal sin was yeah. to copy and paste. Um, yeah, the financial industry and just IBC. It's just, it, I mean, marketing in general uh, has a lot to learn about that. Uh, I mean, don't you even have to cite well in college? supposed to yeah back when there were standards in college yeah uh all right look while i have this noise up here i got a couple of comments that i can't i don't know if we're far enough in i like putting you know these types of comments toward the middle of an episode so only the true listeners will really get to enjoy it right (laughs) that's that's my thinking right um but here's a comment on and if I go back to uh, this is episode 150, but there are well over 
200 videos on the Banking with Life channel. So this is a shorter uh, video that was recorded several years ago. The infinite banking concept explained in four minutes, right? <clears throat> I know it's a little clickbaity, but at the time, the AV. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm learning to. This guy, his comment is, or was, is he asking a question or giving information? It's like, uh, can't you learn a lot by asking questions or answering questions? Or is it, am I, am I missing something? <laughs> okay. And so, I, I, who knows if he even had the attention span to listen to the whole four minutes? <laughs> who knows? I think not, because he makes another comment on another. No, same video. Actually, that was a, the original is he asking a question or giving information? No, that was, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me back up. That guy, I don't know who he is, don't really care. That was a question. Here, another troll comes behind him and makes a comment and says, this is brutal, right? Four minutes, yeah, smiley guy. Y'all see me get triggered on the podcast when James says something. The way to trigger James is to leave a comment that might be considered the noise. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. There's other things that trigger me, too. But this, this guy continues. He makes a comment on the same video so that would hope i'd be able to access my own money this guy didn't explain anything in four minutes he ended every sentence like he was begging his wife to forgive him i'll explain it a lot faster it's a scam i don't know i don't know what that means well it means that he's got me confused with the men in his family <laughs> or himself right um because they beg their wife for forgiveness at every opportunity, I guess. I don't know. But I'm not even really sure if he's married because he doesn't wear a wedding ring oh and neither God. does his wife. So I don't know. But, you know, it, it, at least have a legitimate comment or a legitimate question. Yeah. Right. I do not get triggered at legitimate comments and legitimate questions. No, but I do appreciate the, the noise. And a lot of the comments are really good. Yeah, they really are. I agree. What I want to, you know, since this is 150, kind of a benchmark or milestone episode, I want to, there's been a few things that have come up that we've, you know, just in conversation that I think have been progressively more crystallized to my mind have become more art precise and articulate. And I think they're, uh, I don't know, revolutionary might be a big word, but they're, Ooh. Uh, I mean, it, it's a big deal. I mean, there, there's certain ways of approaching policy design or, yeah, ways of approaching policy design that certain tendencies, certain dynamics that are good to just keep in mind and that have come out of, in particular, your and my conversation about these things. And a lot of it is based on stuff that you've said that like gets Thanks my credit, gets okay. my attention. <laughs> and then it's like, whoa, whoa, don't jump over that. And it's like that needs to be crystallized and specified. And so I have three of them here that I think are pretty important. Um, number one is the idea that anything you do to an underlying base policy 
introduces some degree of fragility. Yeah. Yes. So whether it's adding a term writer, regardless of the kind of term, whether it's adding a PUA writer, like anything over and above the base policy is going to introduce some idea of fragility. And I know that word fragility is like metaphorical. I get it. But fragility from a future tax perspective, right? A lot of this is under the umbrella of conforming with the, the regulations discriminating between modified endowment contracts and non-modified endowment contracts, mechs and non-mechs. And so when we talk about introducing fragility, we're talking about managing the non-MEC status over the life of the policy. And then embedded within that, implied from that, is what you might have to do unexpectedly in the future, deviating from your original plan in order to preserve that non-MEC status. And so the idea that anything you do to... And there's a, an un, Another idea in here is that there's no way to guarantee against causing a mech in the future. No matter what, there's stuff that you can do on the margin to minimize the likelihood of it. But there, and I think that, you know, when we talk about structure and stuff, this is, in a sense, we, there's some degree to which this kind of statement of anything that you do to an underlying base policy introduces for some degree of fragility. There's some degree, which is that, to which we, we kind of assume that maybe it's somewhat obvious, but it would help to go back to it, clearly articulate it, put it forward. Because if you start there, that really f sheds new light on the question of premium structure. You know, if you, if you go in saying, because the modified endowment contract, will, I mean, it's terrible, like terrible, terrible tax test. I get it. But when does it really have teeth? Well, it's got teeth. Like it's going to hurt more when you've got, cash value in excess of the cost basis. When you've got a big old unrealized gain, as they like to talk about it, in the policy. Well, when's that going to be? I don't know. Late in life? You know, decades maybe after you start this whole process? And so, you know, is that when you'd want to have an unexpected tax problem? <clears throat> like, obviously not. Like, that would be very bad, you know? Um, so, it, I think we, we jump over a lot of the fundamental framing around premium structure and this little corollary of the idea that anything you do to an underlying base policy introduces some degree of fragility helps mitigate that. I'm glad you have three points because there is much more than that. And then let me yeah, go. Don't go ahead of me. I'm going to get to the other ones. Okay. But. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Uh, but not only the tax status of a policy Right, adding fragility, changing the tax status, but it also it's either it's an and or mainly an and that it will these structures that I'm speaking to whenever you add these riders to the policy and it it limits the premium that you can pay. I don't care what that illustration that you're looking at says. When you push print, it's wrong. Dividends are going to go up. Dividends are going to go down. And I'm sure you're going to speak to the effect of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's human behavior as well, right? So who wants to look at a 
a 30-year stream of $100,000 premiums or $10,000 or $5,000. It doesn't matter what the premium size is, but you're looking at an illustration potentially that has decades of high premium. And it and two, and let me say this, that and nobody wants to see that, but typically your basis is it doesn't take decades for the cash value no. to be above your basis. Yeah. It it years. Yeah. Right. Not not decades. But the further out you go, the greater the effect of that fragility and the negative consequences. Does that make sense? The greater so, the potential impact. Yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. So it's not just the mech, but it's also you limit your ability to pay future premium. Now, that you may be okay with that if you're 23 years old looking at a $10,000 premium until you're 75 or 80 or 100 or 120 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you just go talk to your grandfather, your grandmother, your uncle, your aunt, a successful business person. And ask them how much capital do they need Mm. or want to have access to in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. It does matter, Mm -hmm. and it will matter. So not only the tax status, but your ability to even accumulate, formulate capital, i.e. pay a premium. Well, there's cases where it's because in order to mitigate, in order to preserve the non-MEC status in the future – one of the things you may have to do with an excessively manipulated structured policy is reduce PUA premium, uh, potentially reverse prior PUA premium with and partial that, surrenders. That's limited that you can do that. But exactly, because yes. you're going to, I mean, cons- I mean, let's flesh that out. I mean, okay, so you, you, you get late in life, you've got a, a wildly manipulated, structured policy, right? Very little to the base, unusual term writer that's, you know, financially engineered to allow the agent to print an illustration that shows as a non-mech with these absorbent high premiums with very little to the base. You get way out into the future. There's a fluctuation in the dividend scale. You didn't pay the premium exactly as illustrated at the time of the year that the illustration assumed you paid it. So, so there were deviations between what was assumed to happen that, that were th- those, what was assumed to happen was very precisely calibrated and what you actually ended up doing deviated to some degree. So you get down the road human behavior yeah you get down the road and come to find out if you don't reverse prior pua or if you don't uh reduce pua premium you cause you may cause the policy to become a mech Uh, and you're late into the life of the policy when the idea potentially of some form of distribution Passive income through loans, tax-free. Is on the table. Or even even just withdrawal to basis, right? Right. Okay. So you said there's a limit to what you can do to prevent the mech status late in life in that kind of scenario. And where my mind went is you only have so much basis yes. in the policy. So maybe you can get all your all the premium back out that you paid in, either through partial surrenders or dividend uh, distributions in cash. Okay, well, there's a limit to that. Yep. And once you cross over the cost basis, once you start taking distributions in excess withdrawals or dividend distributions in excess of the cost basis, well, now you're triggering income tax again. So you you sort of withdrawals. Yeah. You you limit you know the 
there's this narrowing uh this narrowing sort of range of possibility yes to, to, to stay in the lane to stay within the, the that range narrows i mean that that narrows yeah as time goes on and then and and, and so one of the you mentioned the reduced paid up reduced base amount but a paid up policy mm. that will not always necessarily avoid a met Right, might even cause one. It could absolutely cause yeah. one. And Boy, it, that's a there's a little <laughs> wait, wait, totally neglected. That. The uh, the the possibility of that causing a mech goes through the roof. The jankier these policies are built, yeah. Why is that? Reduced paid up, reduced base amount paid up, and and it's just a side note. Does your company even pay a dividend on an rpu policy oh wow what have who what financial uh, do you know yeah your agent doesn't either <laughs> i'm just saying so but that affects and so the the face amount reduces probability of a mat goes up the dividends purchase death benefit hmm dividends not paid it's not buying death benefit directly affects the met calculations does your company even do a secondary or tertiary met test on that illustration you're looking at yeah the com- companies do a really bad job of explaining or at least communicating to the client to the advisor whether ongoing met testing is done in their illustration software uh, but let me that point oh, that going, yeah. that point that an rpu could cause a mech in the future <laughs> That's, you know, th- th- there's because that's not the only thing, right? Dropping oh. a term rider or oh. the, the expiration of a term rider could oh. also do it, right? The idea of, a, generally speaking, the idea of a modified endowment contract, too much cash value, too soon relative to the death benefit, right? Cash value is getting too close to the death benefit too soon. Why too soon? Well, eventually cash value will equal the death benefit, yep. right? At age 121. So they're, they're approaching, the cash value is approaching the death benefit over time. But if the cash value approaches too quickly in the wise eyes of the U.S. federal government and the IRS, then the policy becomes too excessively investment oriented. It becomes a modified endowment contract tax status, tax treatment changes. Well, what's one thing that could cause cash value to get too close to the death benefit? Well, it could be a reduction in the death benefit. Well, what kind of things reduce the death benefit? Well, an RPU, reduced payout, one of the non-forfeiture options, you reduce the death benefit to pay up the policy. Is a re- that's a reduction in the death benefit. And if if the if the debt if the if the magnitude of the reduction in order to pay up that initial death benefit is substantial enough, then it's perfectly possible. And I've run illustration iterations to like flesh this out to show this then you could cause a mech that otherwise wouldn't have been caused right um and wait you mean you wait you you take the time mr griggs are you telling me you take the time to flesh these things out for your there, clients uh, well there are what? even there's things what? that you can't do with the software that i wish you could do. like there are naic <laughs> regulation because here's another thing right and uh, an increase in the dividends an increase in the div, not a decrease, an increase in the dividend scale beyond what's illustrated, that too could cause a mech. Yeah. Because it, 
Dividends. It's a deviation from the illustration. It's a deviation. It so any deviation, including, and look around what's happening now. Interest rates have gone up for the first time in like 50 years, and maybe they stay sustainably rising. Maybe they don't, but maybe they do. And maybe dividend scale, maybe maybe there's a, and I've having a conversations with uh, uh, the lead product designer at one particular company about this in particular. Yeah. Uh, about, well, what's that conversation look like? Because that's a, that's a new conversation given the last 40, 50 years of interest rate developments, right? Yeah, There's this sure. regular downward trend. You know, look at the 10-year treasury bond over the last 50 years. It's a steadily sloping, steadily declining line. And recently with what's going on with the Fed and Powell, that's starting to creep upwards. Okay, well, if that kind of, if that sustains dividend scales, track, the current interest rate environment, albeit with a lag, but they do track, right? The interest rate environment informs the nature of the yield on investment portfolios. Life insurance companies are investing the premium dollars that they receive in order to generate a steady long-term oriented return to be able to pay claims and stand behind guaranteed cash values. And so there's this typically a bond portfolio at a life insurance company that's got a lot of different bonds that have been accumulated over a long different, lot of different time periods. They've each have their own yields. And as new bonds are collected in the present day environment, you're going to have corresponding yields to the current interest rate environment. And eventually you do that long enough, the current and recent interest rate environment is going to affect the overall yield on the portfolio, which in turn will affect the surplus, which in turn affects the dividend scale. And so, and dividends go back into the policy in the form of PUA to buy more death benefit and cash value. So there's a, 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 a train of logic that says that what's going on in the interest rate environment is going to affect the death benefit and cash value growth in an individual policy, every one of which is subject to ongoing MEC testing. So even an increase in the dividend scale could throw off relative to what was originally illustrated, the cash value and death benefit that's shown in that policy over time. Okay, well, National Association of Insurance Commissioners, in all of their wisdom, right? NAIC is, by the way, just populated by a bunch of state bureaucrats, the commission, the people who what? run the commissions. Yeah, so it's just government officials all the way down. They, in their wisdom, they say, well, you know, we don't want the agent to show, and I understand this, we don't want the agent to show an inflated dividend scale to a client to set- You're speaking to what you would like to be able to do with an illustration. Yeah, I want to be able to show, like, <laughs> let's assume, you know, and, yeah. and say, look, maybe they restrict, they say, you know, you're not allowed to show this to a client. Okay, fine. I don't even care about that. I mean, we, I do the illustration out of an abundance of service to like, to, you know, show that what we've talked about is aligning with what we're applying for. And we absolutely, the goal is not to set expectations based on an artificially inflated dividend scale. I get that. I mean, I've, we've probably been more critical of inflating dividend. By the way, there are ways for companies to inflate dividends. It's called a dividend multiplier. It's already out there. And the NAIC doesn't get that. Well, that's right? only one way. There are more ways than that. Oh, how about let's index the dividend? Exactly. I love that. You know, let's, let's, uh, Let's index a dividend to the S&P 500 because, oh, the life insurance company wants to be a financial services company. And then there's this even that adds even more. Covering their non-profitability over a, company, <laughs> over a given year. I don't know. But that, that would add an, even another layer yeah. of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because all, all of those dividends are going back into PUA. Okay, so yeah, I would like to look at what happens to a given policy. You know, assume the same age of the insured, assume the same total premium outlay, and then look at iterations with different structures under different dividend scale assumptions, including ones in excess of 100% of the current scale, so better than what would ordinarily be interested, 
better than what would ordinarily be illustrated and look at those where the dividend scales lower than what's would currently be illustrated to see what happens to the mech status in the policy over the long and you can't do that because of the, these regulations against showing clients inflated dividend scales so it's you know there, there's a again going anything you do to an underlying base policy introduces some degree of fragility and so it's like okay you know you want all that cash value day one well at what price how much uncertainty are you willing to deal with how much uncertainty from a tax perspective is future you willing to deal with how solid do you want this to be how predictable how uh, how in alignment with future expectations do you want this to be um, and then I, in discussing this with a, another, not this in particular, but a related point with another agent, a, a uh, new, brand new agent, it came to my mind that, you know, looking back over the last five years, and I don't know if this is totally the case, but if it's not 100% true, it's real close. I don't know that there's a, I've had a single client that couldn't have shifted the structure of their policy. 10 points more to the base and away from the PUA and they wouldn't have noticed the difference yeah. in the early years exactly. because so few people who are really doing IBC practicing what Nelson taught are you know running to the company to get a maximum policy loan day one right Do we we I think there's a certain degree to which we overestimate our fear of illiquidity yeah you know, there's that like, and it's exactly what, you know, Nelson's rules. Don't be afraid to capitalize. It's that, Any, and it's Parkinson's law. Everybody in my experience, uh, if not everybody, most everyone, you know, once you start paying a premium, they, they intuitively recognize that, mm. you know, and then when they listen to like legitimate information, in my opinion, that disparages the 1090, right? And if you go into why, and I have, look, I have, I've shared it with you, I have agents regularly say, James, you know, uh, you know, can, can we schedule some time and, you know, can you share with me the dangers of a 1090 or these types of policies? They don't know, right? Um, but to the person, when you pay a premium, you get into the second and the third year, they intuitively see, know, and understand that it's like, yeah, I'm not harmed at all by paying a higher base compared mm. to a lower base. As a matter of fact, it makes more sense to me now mm. that I should pay a higher base. And we, we have, over the last several years, all the time, people call, you know, we people thank you, too. Uh, they contact us all the time, every day. And some are new, most are new to this idea of becoming your own banker. But we get a lot of refugees that you mm. described in the past. It's like, well, I did this. It doesn't make sense to me. What you're saying does make sense to me. So I want to do that. What you're, you know, want to work with you. Yeah. Um, and there is their understanding you know number one is once you put your hand to the pile and you start putting money in you know this fear kind of goes away and then as you experience a cash value increase on a properly structured policy you know for you um and and you get more comfortable interacting with the company and what they are their online portable 
you know, your comfort level goes up, period. The, the company is doing what you expect it to do. And it's all very easy for a company to um, pay the dividend that's illustrated in the first year or two, the first two or three years. They're, they're all fairly, very accurate, right? Um, but as your comfort level goes up, and then you actually start applying these principles and you start actually financing things honestly and legitimately not trying to make this idea a, a scheme or you know just an add-on or both on to whatever it is you're doing like you're you're actually building capital to become your own banker and once you start doing that your confidence goes through the roof yeah. but it's intuitive i'm telling you from experience that of course a skinny little base isn't good but you may not be able to articulate why right or fully understand why what's going on behind the numbers which is exactly what you're diving deep into there's a connection to another point here and i had this conversation with a client recently who got through the whole process and the particular product we were going to use was a paid up at 95 and uh one of the questions he had was, well, why, why 95? I mean, he's like in his early forties. That sounds like a long time. You know, how about 30 years, yeah. you know? And I'm like, yeah, well, why not 30 years? But look, wh- why restrict yourself to that? How old are they? Were they early forties? Okay. So why not have the ability to pay for longer, right? That's the underlying question of this idea of is the best kind of policy for IBC, a quote unquote, limited pay policy, one that will only accept base premium for a short number of years, maybe 10 or 20 years, as opposed to something very long-term oriented. And my point to him was why not have the ability to pay more for longer? Should you end up willing and able to do it? Because you don't know. And if you're alive, ostensibly there should be income coming from somewhere. Uh, And if there is, it might as well go to an asset you own and control. And if that's a good idea now, it's probably a good idea then. Uh, Yeah, because taxes are going to go down in the future, right? (laughs) So the the mech in the future is not that big a deal because taxes are going to go down, right? (laughs) Yeah, and you're going to turn 75 and not need any capital. And you maybe not. You may not need it, but maybe you want to give it away. Yeah, or, or the need to continually build it, right? So why not have that? And then if you want to shut off the premium because you're suddenly unwilling and unable to make a premium payment, so be it. You know, you have non-forfeiture options that help you do that, but you don't. why restrict yourself to that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the future is unknown. There's no question. And you don't know the future. Neither do I. Yeah, the future is unknown. Yeah, okay. At whatever point in time you want to go to in the future, I don't care if you're 55, 65, 75, 85, 95. It doesn't matter. Pick a point in time in the future. It's like your circumstances at that time are going to dictate what you do. Mm. And you have no idea what your circumstances are going to be. I mean, we have a general idea of what they would like to be. And we're working today to be in that position. But you don't know. So why not have the ability to pay a premium if you choose to? Right. And then on a properly structured policy, why not have the ability not to pay a premium if you choose to? In either case, uh, it's okay to not mech. Yeah. Right. And then, well. So to have a substantial base. Is what you're is what you're saying, like the yeah, and the and the opportunity. So have a correct 
correctly structured policy, which is individualized. I mean, we can generalize. There's no question, but you can't overgeneralize to like 1090 and everything's perfect or 6040 and everything's perfect. But for the lack of a better word, customized to you and what you're doing right now, um, what you do know right now and, and fully aware of the future being unknown, a properly designed policy duration is always left out. And that's really what we're talking about, right? Yeah. The duration of premium paying ability. Um, so, I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about is a proper structure put me in a position because the future is unknown. I want the whole duration. Well, what is that? It's my whole lifetime. If I'm buying a life insurance policy and I have one exponential curve and that policy is on my life, I, it kind of goes back to what year in the future do you want to sacrifice your policy because of a jank design to get these artificial, I call it, I call it artificial liquidity in the early years because it is it's an illusion um yes it's there in the first year but what does it do in the future right so put me in a position that i can choose i'm not forced to go through underwriting i'm not forced to reduce my policy Mm -hmm. i'm not forced to accept a mac a mech and then figure out how to work around it you Mm -hmm. know and how to mitigate it all right okay and and i get it the the young man you know why not why why to 95 why not 10 years why not 15 or why not 20 years well legitimate question it is a very legitimate question and it's also uh can be followed up by another very legitimate question um do you have children no i know you don't i do might you have children in the future i don't know it's unknown but if you have children and and just take in my case my youngest child just turned 15 Okay, and we own policies on her and we're buying more policies on her. And so the most efficient policy that anyone will own is the one that is the oldest, that has been in existence the longest time period. Now, at her age of 15, can I talk about a 55, 65, 70 year timeline? Sure. I might not be here. I won't be here. All right. So, but if she's going to be here, God willing, and then my children go on to have children, can't I then appropriately and realistically and legitimately think in 50, 75 year timelines and like actually be okay with that? Sure. As a matter of fact, wouldn't I want to think like if, if I'm practicing the infinite banking concept and I am and we are, my wife is and very thankful to be able to do that. Um, you know, there's going to be a honking death benefit mm-hmm. for somebody at some time. And dang, they don't have a place to put it or they don't even have a path or a format or an understanding of what to do with it. I mean, how tragic is that? So I get the fact that he may not be able to think in his own life expectancy in terms of 50 years or 55 or to age 120 or whatever. But that's still short-term thinking. Mm-hmm. Right? It, well, and he just asked the question. I mean, it, he, he, after I explained him, he understood. But that, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so anything you do to an underlying base policy introduces some degree of fragility. Of course, that doesn't mean don't do anything, right? We add PUA, we add term. I mean, the, it's just keeping that in mind, right? Managing that uh, potential for mech problems into the future. Okay, but that leads into the second one. 
uh, and this one kind of came to mind, I don't know, six to eight months ago. I guess I, I've referred to, I've referenced it, but you said this and you quite, you demonstrated it in your talk at the recent client only event, but the younger you are, the more as a percentage of the annual premium outlay should go to the base. Mm-hmm. So just generally speaking, we've established that you want to have a, su- a substantial base premium. But the on top of that, sort of calibrating one layer further, one you know one layer of resolution higher in that dynamic, in that conversation, the younger you are, the, the relatively more to the base there should be. And like you said earlier that the, you know, we, everything's personalized. There, dividend paying whole life is so flexible. And I think sometimes that's a challenge for people to understand because we're used to such a limited range of choice in what we do financially. But in IBC, there is so much flexibility and possibility and everything should be customized, which is, but, that, but that's not to say that we can't speak in these, in, in general categorical terms about overall tendencies right that one can use to apply to a particular situation where you then go and customize something and i think this is one example where you know the younger you are the greater you want the base to be the because you have longer to live and the longer therefore the policy has to be in force and the more so dividends and your behavior will affect cash value and death benefit growth into the long term. I mean, it's related to that earlier point of fragility in the long term when you make manipulations to an underlying base policy. This is in some sense an implication of that. Okay, well, if that's true and if thing, if there's, you know, the further you go into the future, the more uncertain it is, the um, greater the opportunity there has been for dividends and your behavior to affect what's going on in the policy, the more so you would want a greater component of the contract to be guaranteed, which means a greater base policy, which means a greater base premium as a percentage of the annual outlay from the get-go. And that you can apply that all the way back to 14 days after birth, Yes, you know, uh, as early as an insurable interest can be established. So that's number, uh, that to me is number two. And I think that would help like it, frame this understand this question of premium structure it is the exact opposite it's a dynamic understanding that it, it contrasts with that constant unchanging recommendation where a structure everywhere and always is right yeah. like that that is not true and in fact it is the opposite of the truth what is true is that one everything should be customized to the individual and two in fact there's this underlying current this sort of range of dynamics to take into consideration uh, that would suggest that not necessarily dictate, but that would suggest that different people, depending upon where they are in their age should have, should it's relatively more likely the case for that individual that maybe they go with one structure than another. Um, just you couldn't have a more polar opposite advisory framework. No. And it's, Kind of I, I appreciate anyway. you pointing that out. Yeah. <clears throat> it is so true. And let me let me say on that point, if you think about that, 14 days old, they're a minor child. You can't use term on minor children. That's a true benefit, however unknown to the agent or to the consumer. Because you take that component off the table, 
that will add fragility to that policy. Okay. And then going beyond that, you can still put a lot of base. I mean, a lot of PUA on a child's policy, but it's limited because you don't have the term coverage, that higher death benefit. Okay. You can still put a PUA on there. Why would I want to weight it to the base? Right, the old XY, XY scale. And Nelson tells you very clearly, uh, make a couple of points here. You, you create a base policy premium for the child. It's going to create a MEC number that you can use then to pay the PUA. But the XY scale, the more premium you pay, the shorter the duration that you can pay. So when you wait a 1090 policy, you cannot pay that premium over the whole lifetime and expect no issues and expect that it's not going to be fragile. So on a child's policy, you're still going to be able to pay a PUA, right? But the more PUA you pay, you're going to shorten the duration. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the way I would say it is the more heavily weighted the premium allocation is to PUA, the shorter the duration over which that PUA is actually payable. Yes. Yeah. And, and you're as a child, you, you're especially 14 days old, you only want to pay a high premium for 25 years? <laughs> really? I mean, and maybe that's the case. Yeah. Is it? But, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably not. When you thoroughly think through what you're doing yeah. and what you're, what's what happening to in- can be done, what, what can be done, what's happening to income at 25? Exactly, is they're going down. You know, no. it's like, they, and, and I speak to these young people. And, oh my gosh, I get to speak to the most incredible people, and I'm not patronizing. Okay, um, the, these young people are knocking it out of the park. You know, at 25, 35, 45, 55. But you haven't even entered into your peak earning years, young person, at 30. You do not want – that is not the time to limit. That is not the time. And then all of these investments that you're making in crypto, or if your platform doesn't collapse, right, um, or whatever. I'm a little, a little shade there, but uh, you – you don't know the future. The future is unknown. But your need for capital is not going to go down and not go away. Mm-hmm. So why limit yourself? I mean, why? And Nelson tells you very clearly, very clearly in Becoming Your Own Banker. And I'm not going to tell you where. Just read the book and find it. But And I told you before the talk of October mm. that this slide is the most powerful slide that I'm showing. He tells you very clearly how to build a policy, very clearly. But you have to have a bit of experience to see that. I think uh, someone read the book and say, like, yeah, it's not so clear. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well. Um, but I know what you're saying. I, yeah. I'm, I'm saying the, very the, directly. Nelson tells you exactly where to start on policy design. Mm-hmm. And then others you have to intuitively know because of, of his whole work. Mm-hmm. So it, but it's all very simple. And it, it leads me back to the day, you know, early on, Nelson rarely answered a question directly. And oh my gosh, that would make people angry. Mm-hmm. Just try that on your spouse and see how well it goes. <laughs> 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 um, but he would answer questions with questions. He would make you think. Mm-hmm. And what's the value of that?
And so going back to that other troll, or the other troll, the troll earlier is like, is he asking a question? It's like, is there something wrong with questions if they're legitimate? Mm. All right, so that's one and two. Okay, three. This one's really great. This is, um, this is a, they're all really great. This is essentially the mirror image of Parkinson's law. It's the, if you're defeating Parkinson's law, this is what it looks like. It's, it's naturally implied. It's just not stated explicitly in the book, right? But, I like that. I like that. Naturally implied, but not explicitly stated. Yeah. I like that. That's exactly what it is. So you might have to read it three or four times to get it. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, it really helps like turn these ideas around in your mind and like ask what would the opposite of that look like? And then what are the implications? Yeah. Okay. So the, all right, here it is. The more you make or the higher your level of income the greater the percentage of it that should be paid in premium. So the more you make an income, the greater, let's say the annual gross income level, let's say, the higher the percentage of it that should be paid to premium. And this is, so it's a nice, like, okay, so Parkinson's law, work expands to meet the time envelope allowed, applied to finance, expenses rise to equal income. In America, expenses rise to exceed income. The opposite of that. Uh, The more you make, the greater the percentage of it that should go to premium. The larger the margin should be. Right. And you may say, well, why is that the case? Well, it's kind of there's a there's a really wonderful uh, integration with the idea of diminishing marginal returns in economics. The 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 more you make, the less and less of it ought to go to consumption, right? The, the value of one marginal dollar in terms of the benefit it can bring to you in the form of consumption decreases, right? Now I understand if you make 15 grand a year, you know, to go to a hundred is a big deal. And it's not like you're going to consume, you know, less and less as you make 101 and 102,000. I, I understand that, but generally speaking, assuming you are taking care of your subsistence level needs, right? You're what I call the need for immediate liquidity, right? Yep. Cat, uh, uh, groceries in the fridge and gas in the car and, you know, oil in the uh, oil in the vehicle, all that kind of, you know, your immediate the heating needs. oil in New York and the New England state, yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> basic needs. <laughs> yeah. Once you've solved for those, once you have sufficient income for, to handle those kinds of things and, and you're starting to save, you've started to beat Parkinson's law, you're consuming less than you're earning. As the income level continues to rise, the amount of it that goes to premium should increase. It's just to say that as you do better, as you earn more, as you become more productive, you should be capitalizing more as a percentage of what you earn. And that, so that's a natural, what's so nice about that is that it's a natural uh, sort of derived implication of Parkinson's law. And it lays out a track. It lays out the path of expansion in the future. Right? It kind of tells you, generally speaking, what you should be looking to do. There's going to be expansion of the system. There's going to be additional policies so long as this trend towards greater and greater income each year continues onwards. And 
you know, that's why Nelson had 49, well, part of why Nelson had 49 policies at the height of his ownership. It's why we each own multiple policies. You know, that your capitalizing behavior, which is to say your premium payment should increase over time. And gosh, you line that up with the other two corollaries, right? Or especially, especially that, that second one, that the younger you are, the greater there should be to the base. You can imagine this set of policies acquired over time and how they might look given where you were in time, when they were purchased, and what income was like at that time. Uh, ah, it's, just, it's just a nice, there's a nice trajectory embedded in that. It's very natural as you practice this concept. I mean, and I got a couple of comments on that. That is practicing honest banking. Mm-hmm. It is, period. So you're not an honest banker, in my opinion, if you don't do that or you don't move in that direction. And then another comment is like Parkinson's, he shows up every day. I don't care how wealthy you are. Oh, yeah. I do not care. And as a matter of fact, you know, the wealthier you become, you know, the problems and the challenges just change. Mm. You still have them, right? Just, and you- you listening, $250,000 in the bank, $500,000 in the bank, a million dollars in the bank, you know as well as I do that's not the correct place to put it, mm. right? And the idea, it seems to me in my experience over the last 31 years that even wealthy people, quote unquote, um, are recognizing are beginning to recognize, continuing to recognize, more and more people are, are starting to realize, seeing, being exposed to this idea of the infinite bank concept, and they vet it to the nth degree, just like the individual that makes 15000 a year. And the harder you look, the deeper you look, the better it looks. So this, your three points are really good, and I appreciate you bringing them out. Um. When you think through that, and it's okay to, to I'm going to say it, uh, say it all, I don't say it enough, actually. These long-form podcasts, you know, episodes, we're having fun, we have a great relationship, we interact very well, but you can listen to these more than one time, and quite often you should. Here's a section that should be listened to more than one time. All right, so Parkinson shows up daily, and if you, and you're talking about the marginal value of dollars, right? If, if you're in business, and, and even in your household, if you think about this, look, I'm, it might take me X number of dollars to operate, right? And, and, and there's a X number of dollars in expense to operate at that level. So marginally above that threshold, the expense is not that much greater. So the value of the profits are therefore greater. Does that make sense? Right. It's like uh, Matt, the Matthew principle to those who have more shall be given. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, which is in Nelson's book. Uh-huh. Right. So are you really being a good steward of what you're doing financially? If you've got, I don't want to say lazy money or if you, if you lessen the requirements of your capital, just because you have a lot of it. Mm. 
Right. It really is. I mean, that, that Matthew principle integration is it manifests so nicely because all of the growth in all of these policies is compounding. So if the total amount of, if the level of premium is increasing huh. as income rises, what? then the, then there's essentially a compounded compounding effect <laughs> in your net worth over there's time. An exponential curve in there. That, and the slope increases. Like if you were look, if you were to, yeah, there's an exponential cur curve inside of the cash value growth of a yeah. dividend paying whole life policy. And then imagine there's multiple policies and then, and that, and that the total premium number itself increases. Yeah. Right. If you were to look at the aggregate cash value, yeah. add up all of it together, the, that's an increase. There would be an increasing, just logically speaking, an increasing slope, sort of a, a compounding, compounded effect. The velocity yeah. so, of the exponential curve. So long as you're abiding by this, so long as you're abiding by yeah. the admonition to, on an ongoing basis, defeat Parkinson's law and capitalize more and more. And there's, there's a sense of, because you hear these stories of and I, I really don't like it because it's like you know one of the evils of capitalism you know you have the, the the rich people with the kids and the kids are just little hellions and you know don't <laughs> you know they're gonna squander the wealth of the yeah. yeah this is the opposite of that this is the it's like the idea that the trade-off between freedom and responsibility it's like the more you have you know the in that spider-man quote you know that uh with all great uh with great power comes great responsibility. Like the, the more you have, the greater the responsibility to steward it well. Yep. And if that, and, and so the answer to uh, allowing prosperity to turn into profligacy is continued financial discipline. It's to continue to capitalize more and more. And the, the greater the number, the greater the income, the more pronounced, the more necessary it is to properly steward and to properly capitalize. And the paradoxical, beautiful little implication of that is the more you do that, the greater the capital growth will be. So the more you have, so that scales <laughs> infinitely. What? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's, that's a track. And so because you have this idea that I don't want to leave any money to my kids because, you know, they, I earned it. I'm going to spend it. It's like, yeah, okay. And you can soapbox that all day long, but it's not, you don't necessarily, there is, there is a path. There is a, a logically coherent theoretical path that's realistic and practical where you can defy that, you know, disnified, you know, uh, perception hollywood perception that there's something inherently rotten about being rich or having a lot of capital like that is not necessarily the case that is an indication of the breakdown of the financial principles that generated the wealth in the first place and that's the problem it's a it's a moral principle problem it's not a money capital problem and what IBC does and what these principles do that we've laid out here today and have laid out in the past episodes leading up to this is it gives logical coherence. It gives a structure to that, that scales in a, in a beautiful compounding fashion all to the benefit of the individual. And it's like, you can do that. Here's the, there's a path. You can do that. And and it's open. One of the top, one of the points I made in the Klein only event was that 
as a financial strategy, there's a sense in which IBC is just more available to all ranges of economic profiles. You know, the the W-2... Uh, end up, you know, single uh, $15,000 breadwinner income earner, yeah, to the 1.5 million to the, you know, 15, to the 150 million. million. Yeah. Doesn't matter, yeah. Like, let's have some challenge with these insurance, let's get a group of them together to t- share all the risk. You know, like it can be done. There's no reason they do this, it every day, there's no reason this can't scale. None, yeah. The, and the only reason it can't scale or wouldn't scale is the uh, space between your ears. Yeah. And, you know, let me say this, too. That, that's good news because the and, and that should be exciting to people, because if you look at and one thing I wanted to bring up, you look at like what's happening now in the stock market. You know, the Fed's decided that, you know, Jerome Powell is going to be the second coming of Paul Volcker. Hey, great. You know, correct interest markets. Sure. Let's see how long they last. But yeah, see the ramifications. Uh, you know, and they're called business cycles for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, they're cyclical. They continue to happen. So you have these people now who are in their late 50s and 60s who have built up this market-correlated portfolio in their tax-qualified plan or their brokerage account or whatever, and the value of the stocks and the bonds... Have the bonds take, were hammered this year. ...taken a kick. Worst yeah. bond, worst U.S. Treasury performance, if not in history, you know, for decades. Yeah. And and this is the money, the money, this is the, this is what people thought was the money that they were going to live on for their late life years really freaking sad i mean i've got a client right now and some of them it, it's a little distressing to me sometimes because you and i just work you know you do what you can in the moment but if you have someone who comes to you and it's you know they're advanced in age and i have one guy recently and you know there's a he, he's got certain circumstances where there is a way out there's there's stuff we can do but you think of the person who's you know they've they've had they, they've kind of done what Wall Street told them. You know, they had a job, they, they pursued the benefits and they had a steady, uh, you know, W-2 kind of income. They uh, contributed to the tax qualified plan. They, they plowed their savings into uh, market correlated assets. And now they're, it's, they're, get, they're getting advanced in age. They were told early on, you know, you can retire at 65 and oh, maybe let's round up to 70. And, you know, you'll have enough saved in order to live, you know, for that extended lifespan span to early nine early to late 90s and then one of these business cycles comes around and we've been numbed it's like this uh, it's like we've, we've kind of been economically tranquilized since 08 with profligate monetary policy so it looks like you know someone who's been who's new into wall street hadn't been in finance for more than 10 years thinks recessions don't ever happen right markets just go up forever and here comes the business cycle here comes the results of a change in monetary policy from our commercial and federal reserve bankers giving a nice dose of reality to that stock portfolio yeah look that these that's my point is that's depressing no question but that comes on the heels of these uh artificially suppressed interest rates the lowest interest rate environment in history recorded history go through that 10 years in retirement oh wait i can't earn enough from a cd or a money market, of course not from a money market, or a safe, quote-unquote, place to put money. So now I'm forced to, to yield, seek a higher rate of return. To yield chase, yeah. It, no question. So I'm just saying these corrections are following these low interest rate environments that have depressed and suppressed the retirees for mm. a decade, over a decade. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and it's like, I, mean, I want to go back to the... Uh, 
the uh, you know yes you can do this you know in in light of all the business cycles and all that it's like and capitalism is bad and the horrors of capitalism i mean let's change the meaning of words you know it's what we have today is nothing more than mercantilism mm. this crony capitalism it, it it's nothing new right and then the taxation and then the inflation that they're all jumping around Wall Street and the Fed, and, and it's like a dog and pony show. And it's like, yep, not only can we do this and have a tractor run on within the business cycles that are manipulated, within the markets that are manipulated, I, that's the only way that I'm aware of and have ever experienced that I can shield myself from some of those shenanigans that are very profitable for them, and they're not going to change. So that's another thing that I'm thankful for. Personally, I could care less what the interest rate environment is. Oh, wait, you've been doing all these loans, you know, uh, these HELOCs, these uh, uh, just various lines of credit and the lowest in, 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 in the lowest interest rate environment ever. And then you uh, uh, get off into premium finance. You know, well, Nelson had it pretty good. He brought us the infinite banking concept. But... Now we have these bolt-ons, the HELOC, and all these other opportunities to leverage one of the greatest assets that you can own. What does that look like now? Tell me what a 30-year mortgage is right Mm. now. All these young people that were geared up to build or buy a home. Yeah, and I have talk about trying to buy a home right now. I mean, (laughs) tell me about it. Um, Yeah, and I have clients who did have done the HELOC thing and mm-hmm. you know I'm thankful looking back because one of the questions I raise is with people who have done that is what does all this look like when interest rates go up I don't want to talk about it because they hadn't gone up for 10 years well I mean you raise the question look at the end of the day people are going to do what they're going to do and I, sure. I want them to be aware of things that I think could happen and it's like you know yeah interest rates are going to stay down forever okay well you know you know here's some things that you know can be considered that i've encouraged uh my clients it's like maybe they have a heloc maybe they went out and got a heloc and a heloc is a heloc i'm not saying it's good bad or indifferent i'm just saying that be aware that we're in the lowest interest rate environment ever so while you're knocking it out of the park with that you better start building capital i don't care who you are right now right and so if they have and they did most of them built no they did build capital that's accessible and now they're at the point where they can get rid of the HELOC or the Mm. line of credit or be less dependent upon it that's where you want to be yeah sufficient capital less dependent that's the solution yeah to send the banker packing that's right uh you know i've said it many times i mean my daddy said when i was young he's like you know you gotta let the banker be profitable you gotta let the banker be profitable and he used to go to his banker with his hat in his hand and then when he was older, before he graduated, the bankers were coming to him with their hats in their hand. What's that word? Mm-hmm. Where can you find that on an illustration? <laughs> yeah. How, talking to Nelson, you say is a, a stress-free way of life. Uh, yeah. Yep. And then, you know, you also talked about new, you know, uh, a minute ago, the uh, these new people – Ask how many financial gurus you have in your life that have experienced this rising interest rate environment after a pandemic and lockdown of the economies and the supply chain and everything else. 
these guys in the home office of the life insurance companies haven't experienced mm. this, the majority of them. Yeah, I'm interested to see, and, and you know, you spoke earlier about how the dividend, you know, will increase, and it will increase as interest rates go up. But you know what else is going to increase between now and then? Is the loan interest rate. Yeah, I know there's going to be a wave. We used to talk about, you know, there's going to be a wave of, you know, as short-term interest rates rise, uh, companies that offer policy loans at variable rates, the loan rate's going to rise. And I can just foresee questions about that. And I just go back to, and maybe this will help preempt a lot of it. This is not about rates. No. It's just not about rates. It's about control over the banking function. It's about volume. Um, but it'll happen and you know, there's going to be more number crunching and uh, yeah. Uh, loan rates are going to go up. Dividends should go up if they're a well-run mutual company. I think most in dividends time, my stress in time. are going to be held this year. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. They follow. They're like a, a lagging indicator. How about, how's that for Wall Street jargon? <laughs> you know? um, but I remember when on the uh, first policies that we purchased, I mean, the dividends were, you know, six, seven percent. Oh, wait, and the loan rates were six, six and a half, six point three five. I just get so nervous when I we talk about care less. credits, dividend credit scales and loan rates. They're not commensurable. <laughs> they don't do they do not. It's percent percent of what parts per hundred of what? Yeah. And the, the underlying of what is different. Well, this the, is just another place that you can stop rewind and listen because you're going to get inundated in my opinion you know the uh promoters that you know can spell ibc and may or may not know who nelson nash was and what he did um they're going to beat the the uh companies up that have variable loan rates or they're going to beat the company up that has a lesser or greater dividend and you know and you just you my encouragement would be to look through the noise and discover this idea of becoming your own banker. And where you start is Nelson Nash's books, his first book, Becoming Your Own Banker, and his second book, Building Your Warehouse of Wealth. And then the six-and-a-half-hour digitally accessible video of him giving his presentation, that's where you go. Step right over all of the noise that is you know, in the IBC footprint, whatever they call it, Whatever new fangled book that comes out with a new title and a new discovery of Nelson's work, <laughs> um, you could step over. It'll be there after you go to the horse's mouth, go to the source, get a good solid foundation. The noise will still be there, right? And if you wall around in it long enough, it'll be on you. So that'll help you knock all that noise off of you reading the book. Becoming your own banker, building your warehouse of wealth, and accessing and enjoying that six and a half hour presentation. And yes, I'm going to throw this out there because I had the question. I haven't listened to that six and a half hour in a long time, if ever. I mean, I have recordings of Nelson, but uh, I'm told that he references James a couple of times in that video. Hmm. It's at, it was either here or. That was downtown Fort Worth downtown. And a, a, at a seminar that I was, and I just had a couple of questions recently and they come up from time to time. James, is that you he's referencing? Yeah. And with a big smile, I'm like, yes, yes, it was. Just watch it is my encouragement not to hear Nelson say James, to listen to what the man is saying. Yeah. And if you're my client and you haven't seen that yet, uh, you need to talk to me. 
I'll just leave it at that. Um, well, what are you thankful for, Mr. Griggs? Uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving, 150th episode, 150th episode. Well, I mean, I'm thankful to be a part of this. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to sit across from you and to, I don't know, help articulate some of these very powerful little kernels of wisdom that I think really should guide the trajectory, guide the theoretical disposition towards uh, policy design. And I, I think it's going to, you know, I'm going to do, there's going to be more to come. I want to do a, a comparison video. I recently discovered that you can get to all of the legally regulated forms published by insurance companies as part of what? public information. Yeah. So we're going to do, I'm going to do a comparison of like 10 of the companies that you might hear about in the IBC world, looking not at the illustrations that everybody obsesses over, but at the actual contractual language. And I, we've, we've made the point that not all PUA writers are created equal, not all term writers are created equal. And what's that mean? Well, I'm going to show you. And, you know, that, that's, that's also led to that uh, seven-part whole life insurance mechanic series that a lot of people have come across. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very thankful to be a part of something that to, you know, whatever degree it is, is changing how people implement IBC. And it's not... Uh, you know, revising, it's not recapitulating, it's not rebranding infinite banking. It's just a, a matter of, like I tell clients, calibration and optimization. You know, like Nelson said, if you know what's going on, you'll know what to do. And one thing that we as agents could do, in my opinion, one thing that I sh can, should do, is just do a better and better job of explaining more precisely, more clearly why things work the way they do. And if we understand that, then the direction is clear. You know, if you, if you just think in your town, driving around, if you know your town, you know how to get to where you're going. If you go visit somewhere else or you're looking at real estate somewhere else and you don't know the town, you're not going to know how to get to where you're going. I mean, this is some, sometimes it's so basic, but like the, the more you understand the territory, the more familiar you are, familiar you are with the, the logical framework, with the landscape of possibility in this particular enterprise, the more clear the direction is. And we put ourselves in a position where I don't have to tell you what to do. You don't have to take my word for it. Everybody gets to remain autonomous and independent. And we get to, in a mutually beneficial fashion, pursue a better, more prosperous, dependable future. That's pretty freaking cool. And it doesn't depend on who you vote for or what the Congress is doing or what happened on, you know, the second Tuesday in November or whatever it is. And none of that matters. Is that you know? when you voted? And you, can, and you can spend as much time in the swamp as you want. Uh, and then there's a little domain of financial peace and control that once you get through all the setup and learning the fundamentals is really quite simple. Uh, pay a premium. Like you say, the problem is the problem. The premium is the solution. You know, your need for capital going to go one direction, you know, and, and you can accumulate more of it in a way that benefits you over the long run. So I love that, you know, yeah. growing up in a town or living in a town, then you're aware right, of the direction, how to get from one place to another. And you may not even be aware of the names of the streets that you're on. 
Mm. Just think through that. Right. So, I mean, you don't have to be a life insurance expert. Mm. Right. If I know how to get from here to there. Or how to build the street. You know? I could care less. And yes, I know we need taxes. Who will build the streets? The same people that build them now, though, <laughs> just do it more efficient and cheaper. Right. Okay. It's like you don't have to know every single detail. Mm. Right. You don't have to be a life insurance expert. I mean, just think how many streets you drive on every day that you don't know the name. Mm. Now, you know you're going to be looking at the names of all these streets next week, just like I will be. <laughs> but you're still going to get to where you want to go very efficiently yeah. because you know the landscape. Oof. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. It's like, look, I'm thankful for you, the listener. I'm thankful for the trolls, the naysayers. And I don't really, you know, I don't know these guys. I just know that one guy's says he's married but he doesn't wear a wedding oh my ring God. <laughs> look it's like it is what it is uh and i'm being i'm being reserved yeah okay. oh gosh but look i'm thankful for you the listener i'm thankful for our policyholders our clients uh policyholders i'm thankful to be a policyholder and you know i'm thankful that you have the opportunity to discover the idea that you can become your own banker um, at the you and me level, and it's very powerful. I'm thankful for my wife, my family, you know, our office and team, and you know, most of all, I'm thankful for the creator of this universe and the mm-hmm. uh, relationship that I have with him. So, and the opportunity to practice in what is left of a free market that we have, you know. So, yeah, and we we have we have the opportunity to do this. I mean, you really you can become your own banker and. We get caught up in that, you know, in the political or philosophical discussion of, you know, well, there's never, you know, there's always government and it's taxes and inflation. It's always been a part of the monetary and political scene. It's like, yeah, all of that's true. And then, but there's always things you can do on the margin. We have to act in, in, a, in a particular time and place. And this is available. There is a pathway available. And yeah. You know, so, okay. What else? I'm going to go have some barbecue, I think. And Ooh, where are you going? Uh, explore, Don't throw out any names. You're going local or explore away? real estate. Uh, certainly not local in this town. Uh, <laughs> Man, that's harsh, Mr. Greg. Uh, they don't watch the podcast, so it's fine. But <laughs> <laughs> you live in Texas for long, uh, you can become a barbecue snob, and I'm Did okay with there? that. You're I'm there? probably there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, barbecue on your way to what? I think I spoke over you. Uh, to look at different potential real estate markets like raw land probably not totally raw i don't want to build uh, supervise a build out on raw land i don't think you know crypto's taking a dive and so has precious metals are you gonna stop by there at all yeah and <laughs> add it to the list of things that i couldn't care less about oh. um that's what i'm up to all right happy thanksgiving yeah, enjoy thank the holidays See you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.